a few weeks back, uh, literally like three weeks ago, I was talking to Jared and I said that um, I felt like God was kind of laying on my heart to teach on marriage at some point in church. And uh, so here we are, three weeks later, asking you shall receive. I, I wasn't expecting it that fast. but um, So while Jared and Megan and I think a, a, a couple other couples from our church are at the marriage retreat, we're going to bring the marriage retreat here. So the title for our sermon today is Principles of a Godly Marriage. So if you could open up your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, and Austin, Austin's going to be uh, distributing the Word of God today. Amen. If you don't have a hard copy or if you need one, don't uh, feel ashamed to flag them down. So, uh, we want Riverstone Chapel to be a place where your marriage can thrive. We want it to be a place where you are encouraged, equipped, and challenged to grow your marriage into something beautiful. And where your marriage can ultimately be a reflection of Christ's love and service to what the church calls his bride, the church. And as that happens, we hope that your marriage would in turn be an encouragement and a life giver to other people around you. That's what we want for Riverstone Chapel. Amen? Uh, but when we look at our culture today, it only takes a couple minutes uh, you know, at that, uh, the grocery aisle as you're checking out to realize that the world doesn't have a great recipe for marriage. Have you noticed that? Like, we're up to like $100 billion divorces now. So we, uh, money's not the answer. We figure that one out. Um, and there's been a lot of high-profile divorces these last couple of years through COVID. I saw one, it's like uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, you know, richest man in the world for 20 years out of the last 30 years. And uh, he and his wife got a divorce a couple years ago. That was one that I was, it kind of surprised me because they seemed like they were such good people, you know? Um, and then one, and again, I'm not dogging anybody in, in culture, that's not my point, um, but one that actually kind of stood out to me recently was just like a month ago, Tom Brady and Giselle, whatever her last name is, I can't really pronounce it, Boonkin, Boonkton, okay, I'll let, you can come up afterwards and we'll get that right. It's like umlauts over the U and I, it just throws me off, so, um, so you've got Tom Brady, who's like really good looking, by the way. I don't know about you guys. Um, Josiah thinks he's good looking too. But he's like the winniest Super Bowl quarterback in history and like all the other records, plus good looking. Um, and he's married to a supermodel. So you have what the world tells us is kind of a pretty good setup. You know, they got money. They've got uh, success. You know, she's the highest paid supermodel or was at some point in the world. And uh, still, we realize that, okay, so none of those things really cuts it. Because they followed their own recipe for a godly, or not a godly, for a successful marriage, and it still didn't work out. So the world's recipe for happy marriage fails time and again, and we see that. So at Riverstone, we take our cues on how marriage should look from the Bible which, uh, although it's like the most successful way to do it, is still not the most popular way to do it. It's, it's so successful, but it's so scorned in culture today. 
But here we don't teach what's popular in culture. We teach what we, what we see in God's word as being true. And this is what we see when we look at God's word about marriage. We see that an almighty and sovereign God invented marriage. So he's got the trademark. We don't get to redefine it, and we don't get to redesign it. God created marriage. And he invented marriage with a very special purpose, and that in the long run, you and I are most satisfied when we follow the model that he set forth. Thank you, Josiah. I appreciate that. So here's some of the main ideas we see about marriage in the Bible. Uh, and again, we're not going to get through all of this in a deep dive, but here's just some, some, main, some main concepts. First, marriage is a covenant relationship where two people commit to each other before God. Second, uh, marriage is intended to be lifelong. We see Ma uh, Jesus talk about that in Matthew 19. It is a relationship between one man and one woman. We see that from the very beginning, Genesis 2. Therefore, it is not a relationship between multiple men with multiple women, what we see in culture called polyamory. It's not multiple women with one man, what we see called as uh, polygamy. It's not two men or two women, which is homosexuality, and it's not a human with an animal, which is called bestiality. And you might laugh, but that's actually in the Bible at the very beginning. God actually had to address that which kind of goes to show us when you follow our own design for marriage, it gets kind of weird. <laughs> one man and one woman. Also, am I making anybody uncomfortable yet? <laughs> marriage is the intended place for sex, sexual intimacy, and for sexual pleasure to be blessed and the only prescribed place to experience it. Hebrews 13.4. Therefore, marriage is the designated place to have children and to raise a family. However, while we see these things as God's design, we want you guys to know that if you had a marriage that didn't last, we love you. If your ex-spouse was hurtful, we love you. If you've had children outside of marriage, we love you. If your parents weren't married, we love you. And if you're struggling right now in your marriage and you don't know where to go, you don't know what to think about it, we still love you. Because that's what the Church of God does. Amen? My wife told me I'd cry, and I don't appreciate when she says that. So it really takes away my confidence. Okay. <laughs> Ephesians 5. Let's look at Ephesians 5, verse 22. Before we jump in, let's pray. God, we need your help today to understand how to think about marriage. We need your help, Lord, as we navigate our own marriages. We need your help to learn how to love and respect our wives, our husbands. We need your help, Lord God, to know how to encourage each other. We look to you, God, the author and perfecter of our faith, for guidance in this area. We ask, God, that you would Make our hearts tender, and that you point out any area of our heart that needs to be corrected, God, so that we can honor you with our marriages and show the world how incredible you are. Let me pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, Ephesians 5.22, let's read it to the end of the chapter. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So our first point, marriage is a picture of Christ and his church. Verse 23, Christ is the head of the church. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ. Verse 25, as Christ loved the church. Verse 29, as Christ nourishes and cherishes the church. Verse 32, this is a profound mystery. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. Did we get that yet? There's like eight things right in that passage. It's a picture of Christ and his church. So from the very beginning, God infuses us with this incredible amount of dignity and wonder by saying that we're, man and woman are made in the image of an almighty God. And then again in marriage, he infuses us with enormous dignity and purpose. And he says that our marriages are called to show the world God's character. Tall, tall order, isn't it? So how do we do that? That sounds like a big deal. It is a big deal. Um, so first, in order to do that, we need the mind of Christ. First, that's the first thing that we need. We don't first need tips on how to fight well or to resolve conflict. We don't first need tools on how to budget or how to live with someone else. While these are all good tools, they won't sustain your marriage. First, we need the mind of Christ. And probably the most concise picture of the mind and the attitude of Christ comes from Philippians 2. So we actually are going to turn uh, like one page to the right, I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like Philippians 2, do you see that? All right, good. That's what it is in my Bible. Um, Philippians 2. And we're actually going to read through this, this passage down to uh, verse 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same joy, same love, sorry, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The mind of Christ. So first what we see in this passage, the first thing that we see is that we consider the other and we consider them as more significant. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition in conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. We consider the other, and we consider them as more significant. So when we make decisions in our marriage, we ask the question, does this decision honor my spouse? What would my spouse think of this decision? Am I honoring my spouse this decision? We consider the other. Second, we give up our claim to rights and privileges. It says, though he was God in the flesh, he didn't count his godhood as a thing to be held on to, to be grasped. Grasped. This one boggles my mind a little bit. He allowed himself to be born to a poor couple, to a poor people, at a time when they were severely oppressed. He didn't come uh, during the period of, of David or Solomon when there was wealth and opulence. He could have come then, but he came much later under the horrific oppression of the Romans. He didn't count his godhood as a thing to be held onto and grasped. He came to show us real humility. So in our marriages, when we're tempted to say, gosh, I've been working so hard this week. Ah, I've been stuck at home with the kids. I've been doing so many things. I should get, I deserve. We don't think that way. When we're tempted to think of ourselves, we stop and consider the other. We try our hardest to give up our entitlement to rights and privileges. Man, they've been working so hard this week. How can I serve them? <clears throat> Which leads us to the next idea. He emptied himself. Verse 7, taking the form of a servant. Um, now again, this is, these are all just kind of like variations on a theme, right? Humility, servanthood. That's what this whole passage is about. But when I see those three words, he emptied himself, my jaw just kind of drops. You have the God of the universe who, the second he came down, it, the entire world should have been bowing in honor and respect, and it says he emptied himself. God in the flesh. 
all self-interest gone. And this is what we are called to work toward in our marriages. Do this and it'll flourish. Lastly in this passage, verse 8, he humbled himself, he became obedient, he gave his life. So uh, back in uh, Luke 14, it says that Jesus' ministry was really picking up. And it was getting very popular, actually. He was healing people. News was getting out, casting out demons. He had just fed thousands of people. There were talks of deliverance. And uh, who wouldn't want to follow that guy, right? Luke 14, 25, it says, great crowds accompanied him. So just to make sure that everybody was serious about discipleship, all of the followers, he turned around and he, I'm going to paraphrase, he said, just so we're clear, everybody, uh, if you want to be my disciple, we have a couple stipulations here, okay? Just two stipulations. First, you know, you got to hate your life. Not in a suicidal kind of way, but in a humility kind of way. Hate your life. We all good? Hate it? Sound good? Okay, you can be my disciple. All right, second, you got to take up your cross daily. Now, they knew what that meant back then because they actually could walk down the roads of uh, Rome and see people getting crucified. When Jesus said that to his disciples, that wasn't a lighthearted, like this weird, ethereal idea. It was very tangible. Take up your cross daily. And he said, if you're all good with that, we can keep going. Because that's where I'm going. I'm going to the cross to die for a world that's turned its back on me. And I think that if we take that idea into our marriages, it'll help us when we feel like our spouses have turned their back on us, even if it's for a short time. Because that's what the world did to God. He humbled himself, he became obedient, and he gave his life. So that's, that's where we have it, the mind of Christ. And if we take that entire section, that entire mindset, back to Ephesians 5, it's going to make a lot more sense, and we get our, we'll get our uh, feathers ruffled a little bit less when we, when we look at Ephesians 5. So let's go back there. I'm going to read again, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Submission and headship. God help me as I talk about submission and headship in 2022. Not an easy topic, is it? So let's first talk about Christ-like headship. And I'm going to qualify it that way. I don't want to think of it as headship. I want to think of it as Christ-like headship. Okay, guys? This is for the, the men. Christ-like headship is a position of authority, but not of force in a marriage. It is a position of authority where a man's first act of authority is to command his own soul to bow deeply and daily before an almighty God to whom he will eventually have to give an account of how he led his family. 
It's a position of responsibility where a man is ultimately responsible for the emotional, physical, and spiritual health of his family. Really, there's nothing in our flesh, nothing in a man's flesh that should really want that, right? It's not a station of privilege. It's a station of service and responsibility. Only a sovereign God can draw a man into submission before himself to take on Christ-like headship for his marriage and his family. So wives, if you want your husbands to step into more of this, the nudge can't come from you. It's got to come from God. So pray for him. Pray for your husbands. And a man who understands Christ-like headship is going to cry out daily for God's help because he's going to understand the weight of it. He's going to seek mentorship. He's going to study the Bible and the life of Jesus to know how to serve his family well. He's going to meet with other men and ask, how can we serve? How can we honor our wives better? He's going to pray over his wife and encourage her. Christ-like headship. It's a high calling. <clears throat> okay, now, for a woman, submission does not mean that you don't get to make any decisions. It doesn't permit any type of abuse. It doesn't mean that you're less valuable or unequal. And for a man, wife's, a wife's submission doesn't mean that you get to control her as you please, that you don't seek her input and her wisdom, or that you're more valuable than your wife. We love our wives as Christ loved the church. So we're going to look at uh, uh, two ways that we see further down in Ephesians 5 of how Christ actually loved the church. We're going to look at these two ideas of nourish and cherish. Verse 29, read this with me. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Let's talk about nourish. Some translations use the word feed, but either way, nourish and feed, these are kind of dietary words, right? Diet, the, the main course of nutrition that allows something to grow into something very healthy or that, that allows something to grow it into something sick. Nourish. And we know that our physical bodies will be healthy if we eat you know, a balanced diet of whole grains and lean proteins and all those good things. But also with our bodies, if we get too much of a good thing, we can actually become unhealthy. So what's the main course that you're feeding your marriage? Um, is it working out together? Long walks on the beach together? Cooking together? Hobbies? Vacations? Sports? These are all good things, but should they be the main course? More importantly, how does Christ nourish the church? It says this, how he nourished it just above in verse 26. It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Washing of water with the word. Um, when Kayla and I were, were engaged about 14 years ago now, um, we did our premarital counseling with her childhood pastor, Tony Goodner, who is an awesome guy, um, out, out, of the, out, out at uh, Clayton Community Church, country church up north. 
And uh, we, we met about four times. And one of the main pieces of uh, advice that he, he kept coming back to was read your Bible and pray together every day. And I, I was actually kind of let down because I thought there was going to be some secret sauce. I mean, I, I was raised in the church. I know that you're supposed to read your Bible, and I'd done that. I knew you were supposed to pray. I, I, I did that. But now I was getting married. I thought that there, there was like this secret sauce that I'd be able to finally get to know about, that you get to take into your marriage and make it thrive. And he didn't give it to me. I was very upset. We didn't pay him anything, but I, I, was, I thought I'd be getting more out of our premarital counseling. Read your Bible and pray together every day, he said. Um, so we took his advice. And uh, for the first four years of our marriage, we read through the Bible every year together out loud. And we prayed together every day. Most days, I should say. I don't know if it was every day. Don't, don't quote me on that. But it was, it was a lot. We read through the Bible and we prayed together a lot. And this is what happened. We talked through challenging parts of the Bible together. We looked to God together. We talked about discipleship together. We talked about raising our children together. We talked about what the Bible says about protecting your marriage together. We talked about the most, the most important parts of life together. Christ nourished the church with the washing of water with the word. So take time to read God's word with your spouse. Take time to pray together with your spouse. You will be amazed at what happens. And if it seems daunting, um, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to read the Bible with your spouse. You don't have to know all the answers to read the Bible with your spouse. You just have to open it up. Just do it. God says that the Holy Spirit will teach you when you read his word. So lastly, let's talk about cherish. So we talked about nourishing. Cherishing means to hold something dear or to keep in one's mind. So while nourishing gives us the idea of how to feed our marriages, cherishing gives us, gives us an idea of, I'm going to focus on my wife alone, and I'm going to forsake all others. Most of you probably had that in your marriage vows. I'm going to focus, what does it say? Um, I'm going to hold. You guys remember that part? I'm going to hold and have and hold. I'm going to have and hold is what, what we said. I think I said that. I'm going to have and hold. I'm going to forsake all others. That's what it means to cherish your spouse. So whatever emotional desires I have, whatever feelings of attraction, I'm going to focus those on my spouse, and I'm going to starve all other attractions, feelings outside of my marriage. As a matter of fact, when I meet with the guys, I meet twice a month with some, some other guys from church. If I feel like there's some threats to my marriage that are popping up at work, maybe not sin, maybe I didn't do anything, but there's just some threats out there, kind of dan dancing around, waiting for a moment of weakness, right? I'm going to expose them. And I'm going to tell my two buddies over here, hey, uh, this happened. I saw this on the internet. 
I felt this way at work with this interchange with a, a woman. Didn't like it. I want you to know about it. This is her name, rank, serial number. <laughs> I want to expose it because I cherish my wife. And Satan wants to deceive us here. He'll whisper in your ear, if you're not feeling cherished, find someone who will cherish you. If you aren't feeling respected, find someone who will respect you. Your, gra your grass is looking yellow. It's greener on the other side. I remember a mentor telling me a long time ago that the grass is greener where you water it. That's what it means to cherish our marriages, to cherish our spouses. And you might be in a season of where it's, it's not easy to cherish your spouse. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to promise to you, there's always greater contentment and satisfaction on the other side of cherishing. So worship team, um, if you're still in the building here, there you are. Come on up. Just a minute. I'll drag this out. All right. Got to ad-lib a little. They're somewhere. Okay. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that, um, that you showed us how to do this thing called marriage. We're grateful, God, that you laid out a path for us that if we follow it, we'll be satisfied, we'll, we'll find contentment. Thank you, Lord, that you created marriage to be a place where we can show the world your incredible love and sacrifice and service for us, your church. We ask God that you would equip us. We ask God that you would stir in our hearts to take this serious commitment seriously. Although we want to have fun and play together and, and have romance and all these, these, these things that are good and make marriage an enjoyment. We also know, God, that we need to be on guard. Teach us, Lord, how we can draw closer to you in our marriages. Teach us to honor you, God, in Jesus' name.